Let me just pray one more time over this word. Lord, we just thank you for your scripture. We know it's your inspired word of God. We want to hear your voice, not my voice. I pray that your spirit would speak through your word that you put here, that you, that you stirred in the heart of Paul all those years ago to write, that you preserved for us. And so we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we're going to talk about some hope. So I've got some hope for 2023. I've got some hope for 20, because the Mariners made it to the postseason in 2022. It's the longest drought in professional sports. So I've got some hope going on there. Anybody with me? The pitchers and catchers report. I've got some hope for the World Series, right? Is that too much? Is that too much to hope for? We've got a great core of young rookies and young players. Julio Rodriguez was a sensation. The Mariners signed in amazing pitching. Like, this could be the year. Is anybody with me on this? I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, so they're thinking, why are we talking about baseball? We're talking <laughs> Because there's hope. And last year gave us huge steps forward for the Mariners. They made the playoffs. They played the longest game forever without scoring any runs and uh, finally lost. But, but is, it a, is it an unshakable hope? Can that hope be shaken? Yeah, you go on a 10-game losing streak, it's over, it's the old Mariners. Julio Rodriguez gets hurt, it's over, it's the old Mariners, right? We can be shaken off it real quick. They can have a couple injuries, they could have a rough patch, and we're like, here we go again. Hope is crushed once again. And um, so hope in those kinds of things isn't unshakable, right? We, we're hoping, we're wishing, we're wanting some good things to happen, but we can easily be knocked off. It could easily be shaken and destabilized. But is there an unshakable hope? Something that we, when I'm talking about hope, it's something that we're expecting in the future. The hope is a confident expectation that I know this is going to happen. There's no unshakable hope with sports teams. There's no unshakable hope with the weather. There's no unshakable hope with the economy. Like all this stuff has factors that mess it up. But we're going to talk about unshakable hope in Christ. So here's our point today. Christ's blessings give us an unshakable hope. An expectation for the future that cannot be taken away, that cannot be destabilized. So we're going to talk about that today. Christ's blessings give us an unshakable hope. So we're in Romans 5. We're going to do verses 1 through 8 today. Romans 5, 1 through 8. If you want to turn there, if you want to look up here, take out a Bible there, use a digital app as long as all notifications are silenced. All right, here we go. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's our section today. So let's look at this. Christ's blessings give us an unshakable hope. So the first thing we'll look at is Christ's blessings. What are these things that come into our life as a result of following Christ that builds us to a hope that can't be shaken? So what are Christ's blessings? There's three great ones listed right here at the beginning. The first blessing of saying, I'm going to be in Christ, I'm going to trust Christ, is that you're justified. That you're justified. Look in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified is a, is a, a legal term, almost a courtroom term. That you've been declared innocent. You've been declared guilt-free. That you have a standing of being made just. And it's really the same word where we get righteous from. So when you put faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, that his death on the cross for sins paid the price and his resurrection defeats the power of sin and death. When you trust Jesus as Savior, you are justified. You are declared right. You are declared to have been cleansed. That's a pretty good blessing. Anybody okay with that? Anybody good with that? That's what we're talking about. When we're talking about coming to Jesus, we're not talking about coming to, uh, we're not talking about coming to Jesus as a religion, coming to religion as a new habit. We're talking about trusting Jesus and being declared just. So that's blessing number one. Number two, right after it, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, to have peace means that you probably didn't have peace, right? That there was a time when you had hostility. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. When you're not in Christ, before you've been justified, you actually have hostility with God. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So we're born with our own selfish nature that wants to live out the life we want to live. And then as we live in this world, this culture, the culture says, me, mine, I'm an individual, this is my life, I decide. And so if we're going to want to be friends or live out as this culture around us suggests, this life is about you, you do what you want to do, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, you are actually an enemy with God because God says, I actually made you. And I know the direction for human flourishing, and it's through my son Christ. So if we're going to go our own way, we're actually enemies with God. We're opposed to God's purposes, and we need to submit to him and come to him. But we want to say, I want to do it. So when you come to Christ, you actually move out of that hostility. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then in Romans 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for someone before Christ, God is actually your enemy. I've even heard people say that. 
Like, I don't want to talk to God. I avoided God. I avoided churches. I didn't want to go to anyone's funeral in a church. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to deal with them. I didn't want to be told no. And so you feel that. Anybody remember that? Or that's your, maybe somebody today you feel like God's your enemy. There's a hostility with God. When you come to Christ, you now have peace. You now have been brought in to his family. You are now part of him. Jesus, when he comes, he says, I'm the prince of peace. So peace is not only the absence of hostility, the removal of that. It's also being brought into the family. Peace includes a reconciliation, a healed relationship. So when you come to Christ, you have peace with God. He's not your enemy. He's not adding up all the things you've done wrong and ready to take you out from me. He says, no, Jesus paid for all that. You're now in my family. You are now part of me. And so coming before God is joyful and prayerful, and you feel at home versus feeling in conflict. So that's the second blessing. So we've got, we're justified. We have peace with God. And then the third one is that we have access to grace, access to grace. This is through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Again, notice it's by faith, by faith, not by earning, but by trusting. But this idea of access, it's the idea of an introduction. It's the idea of being brought into the presence of someone of honor, right? If you wanted to meet someone of a higher standing, you can't just take yourself you can't go down to City Hall and just open the mayor's door. How are you doing? I just hit a pothole with my car. I want to talk to you about it, right? You don't just get to walk in there, right? You get a quick visit from the sheriff. Like, hey, we're going to go in another door and talk. All right? You just can't. If you want to meet someone famous, right, you can't just call up Pete Carroll and say, hey, I want to talk about the draft. Let's talk. You, you can't, right? Someone has to bring you in there. Someone has to give you access. You need an invitation. We don't just get to walk into God's, we don't just get to walk into God's throne room. We don't just get to barge in. You need to be brought in. You need to be invited in. And so that's what this passage is saying. When you come through Christ, you have now been introduced, brought into the presence of God, and we stand in his grace right? You see that we've been, we've obtained access. We've been brought to him. We've been introduced through Christ into his grace. It says, in which we stand. We are in his grace. That means that's the new realm and reality. So we're not brought before God so he can bring up your list and what you're still working on and why you had terrible thoughts this morning and why you drove too fast. You know, we're in his grace because we are now in his family, covered by the blood of Jesus. We come before him. Did that move? Okay. Where's Mark in the room? Mark, I'm having technical difficulties. All right, I'm going to have to look at this. Mark might have to touch my iPad and come heal it, Mark. Okay, so since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I missed a part. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he's saying Jesus is the one who brings us access to, the God, to God. He says, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to live your life on earth. And so now we can boldly come before God of heaven and earth, the maker of everything. We can boldly come before him and receive help, receive mercy. Wow. That's a pretty big blessing. That's a pretty big deal, that access. Let's see. This is a quote from John Stott in his commentary. He says, Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace. That's why he says we have access by faith into his grace by which we stand. Right? By which we stand. We're, we're in it. It's not in and out. You're in it. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access into one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are part of his family. You got near Mark and it started working. So I guess you're going to have to sit right. I don't know. It started working again. Okay. That's a pretty big deal. Those are pretty big blessings, right? Justified. When you're in Christ, you're declared righteous. You now have peace with God. You're reconciled into his family. You're not his enemy anymore. You are part of his family, your home. And then you're given an introduction through Christ to the very throne room that we stand in the grace of God. Grace means his undeserved kindness. You come before him, we have kindness. We have him listening to our prayers and answering our prayers and reassuring us of his, his presence in our life. That's a big list, just those three. And that's not all, but that's a big deal. You're justified, you have peace, you have access to God, and you stand there. You're not in and out. It's not if you had a bad day, you're out. You, we constantly have access to the grace of God. So then what it tells us is that that leads us to an unshakable hope. That leads us to an unshakable hope. And so this is the idea that it's a hope that doesn't go away, that's not destabilized. So it says in the second half of verse 2, and, so we have these blessings, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice is kind of different. It's rejoice, we think like celebrating after a victory or praising. Some of your versions might have a footnote or a different translation. It means um, to boast, to be confident to be joyfully confident. So when we're talking about we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, it's not just that we're excited about it, it's that we're boasting in it. We're saying the, the, this is the confidence we have. It, it's a confident hope. I'll give you an example. I had to work the Super Bowl in there, right? When we talk about having a boast, having a confidence, both teams have things they're boasting in right now. Okay, the Eagles fans are like, we have 70 sacks over the season. We have amazing offense and defensive line. We can run the ball. There's no way, there's no way the Chiefs can stop us. That's their boast. That's their confidence. But if you're the Chiefs, you just say one word. 
Mahomes, right? The guy's otherworldly. He makes throws nobody could make. He's miraculous. You just say Mahomes. But they also have Chris Jones, and they've got, they've got a pretty good defensive line themselves. And so there's reasons. It's not just that they say, I love the Chiefs or I love the Eagles. They give you a reason. They give you a boast. This is why we will win, right? That's what I mean. This is what we're confident in. We can do this, therefore we'll win. So when it says here that we rejoice, we boast, we're confident. And here it's almost like saying the same thing. We're confident in the confidence we have of the glory of God. Because remember, hope is a confident expectation. So we are confident. We are, what are you so looking forward to? What keeps you going as a Christian? I'll tell you what it is. I'm going to boast. I'm going to declare to you the reason is a hope. It's an unshakable hope in the glory of God. So he's saying we rejoice. We boast. Not in a boast like I'm bragging. My thing is better than your thing. It's not that kind of boast. It's the reason. It's the confidence you have in the coming future. That's what he's getting at. It's the confidence. So in, uh, what passage is it? Right, here we go. Yeah, sorry. Technology. My confidence monitor is giving me points from last week's sermon. So if you think that's easy to deal with, I already preached that last week. Okay, we're on this week now. Okay. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So what are we confidently expecting? What are we boasting in? The glory of God. Glory is weightiness. It's majesty. It is splendor. So it says here in Philippians 3, this is what we're confident about. This is the reason we keep going. This is the thing we boast in. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the reason that we're confident, the reason that we have a confident expectation of the future is because we know we're going to be like him. If you want to read what is Jesus' glory like, you read Revelation 1. And when Jesus shows up glorified and he meets the apostle John on an island, he doesn't look like the same Jesus that John ate dinner with on the, last, on the Lord's Supper. His hair's glowing, his body's glowing, his eyes look like fire. It says his voice is like the sound of many waters, like a rushing waterfall. And John sees him and just goes, Phew. he just goes down. Jesus in full glory is the blazing glory of God shining bright. That's what he looks like. Yeah, bring it. And then it says he's going to make us glorified. We're not going to be God, but it says we'll be like him. Glorified bodies, eternal bodies. That's a reason to be confident. That's a reason. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Wow. That's an unshakable hope. That's what we're boasting in. 
Why are we hopeful in this life? Why do we look for the future? Why do we keep going? What are we resting in? The glory of God. He's coming. He's risen from the dead. He's reigning forever. He's going to come back again. We're going to be raised and be with him and be like him. And that is an unshakable hope. That is a confidence we don't let go of. It's built upon all the blessings we already have. You've been justified. You have peace with God. You stand in his grace. And the thing we're looking forward to, our unshakable confidence, is the glory, him coming. And those in Christ with him. Now here's, it's sounding really, really good. And here's what I love. The Bible is extremely realistic. Extremely truthful. Because it just sounds like now, like it's blessing, 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 happy, 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 happy. Oh, but then there's an unshakable hope in suffering. This is the reality. We're going to suffer. Life on this earth includes suffering. And a lot of times you think if you come to God, it solves all your problems. It solves a major problem. It solves the hostility with God. It solves damnation and hell. It takes all that off the table. But now you have a new enemy. You have an adversary. You have Satan. You have the host of hell haunting you. It suddenly got real. If you're going to follow Christ, you have an enemy to go with all the hardship in life on earth. So there's suffering. So look what he says in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. It's the same word, rejoice, boast. We're confident in our suffering. Now that seems weird. What we see here is I'm calling it a suffering loop. We're going to go on a suffering loop here. A suffering loop to more hope. So he says, we're confident, we boast in our suffering because what we're going to see is our suffering actually gives us more hope. It just feeds the loop. So let's look at the loop and then we'll try to understand it. He says, not only that, we rejoice in our suffering, we're confident in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance, it means perseverance or patience. When life gets hard, whether it's just physical life, you know, work life, could be emotional hard, relationally hard. It could be uh, pressure and tribulation as a follower of Christ. And we keep going. It develops a muscle of endurance. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep trusting God. I'm going to be patient in this. You cannot develop patience without trial. You cannot develop perseverance without strength. So when you go through suffering, it develops an ability to endure. So that's step one. And then it says, an endurance produces character. And character is tested and proven genuineness. I'm really here because I believe in Jesus. And when you follow Jesus and then it gets hard and you still follow Jesus, the answer is, I really believe this. It's how a lot of things start. If you're going to start a sports team, those first few weeks, they just run you and run you and run you. Do you really want to be on this team? If you get through those first few weeks, I really do want to play this sport. I do really want to go through the running. Or if you join the military, they are going to really work you through. You really want to be a soldier or an airman or a sailor or whatever? Yeah, I really want that. I really want to make that. I'm here. I've been tested. 
right? Or whatever the trial is. You really want to you really want to be a parent and you're going to go through what does it take to raise a kid or I really want to work in whatever it is. If you really want to be there, you go through the suffering. And then it says an endurance character and character produces hope. See how I was a loop? I suffer. I learn to be patient. I develop a real genuineness and then I have more hope. I call it a suffering loop. That's what the passage says. But the question is why? Why does it do that? Doesn't suffering lead to a loss of hope? When do you think that? Like this isn't going away and this isn't getting better. Doesn't suffering make you question God? Doesn't suffering make you wonder, well, where is he? And why isn't he answering our prayer? And how do we get out of this? You'd think the suffering actually messes up the hope. Why does it lead to more hope? Why does it give us a greater expectation? Why does this suffering loop work? That's what I spent some time thinking about. So a few, a few reasons why the suffering loop actually makes you more hopeful. First here is what it says in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. So is the idea of I'm hoping in you. I'm looking forward to your coming and your, your future glory. It doesn't put you to shame. Man. I put all my confidence in God and he let me down. Because he won't let you down. Why won't he let you down? Why aren't we ashamed? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Poured. This story just came to my head. But I remember years ago we were in college and my friends, one of our friend's parents came up to visit and they took our friend and a bunch of us college kids out to Red Robin. That's always the score when you're in college and someone else's parents wants to buy you non-cafeteria food. You're like, yeah, I'm all in. So we go to Red Robin. Oh, there's like 15 people at the table. And everyone's getting milkshakes. And we're like, this is the jackpot. So if, I don't know if they still do this. But Red Robin used to have where they'd pour you the real milkshake. And it was so much that they would bring you the metal cup of additional. Like it was so big it didn't fit in the cup. That's right. I got a milkshake and a quarter. So they're distributing this. And then they come to my friend's dad who bought, was paying for everything. And they just set just the glass of the milkshake down. And he's like, where's my extra cup? And they're like, well, it's just how it is. And they walked away. And it was like, what do you mean it's just how? I'm the one paying. This is going on my card. He just didn't get any extra. But the point is, it doesn't say that God's love has been trickled into our heart doesn't say you've got a few drips he's saying it's like the milkshake and then the extra cup of milkshake it's just god's love is poured into your heart it's overflowing that god's love is directly put into you not out here not up here here because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit has been given to us when you come to christ it's not just like you get a little baby sip the love of god's poured into you and then he goes on to explain it. Verse 6, 4, like how, what is the love of God? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Right? You might give your life to save a kid. You might give your life to save a loved one. But you're probably not going to just see some stranger crossing the road and jump in front of the car for him. Like, I don't know that guy. So you might give your life for somebody really important to you. But for the most part, you wouldn't. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So one of the reasons that the suffering loop works in the middle of suffering, you continually receive in your heart by the Holy Spirit the pouring out of God's love. It says, I loved you when you were my enemy. I loved you when you couldn't do anything about it. I loved you when you didn't love me. I died for you while you were still a sinner. It doesn't say that we got our act together, we started to figure things out, and then God said, okay, I'll help these people out. Now we're in the middle of being enemies. Right? We're, they're nailing him to the cross, and he's forgiving them. So that love is applied not to your head, it's to your heart. So the reason that you can have hope in suffering is that I know God actually loves me with a sacrificial kind of love. Another reason I think that the suffering loop works is that Christ actually understands our suffering. Because one thing for somebody to say, I feel bad for you, it's another thing for someone to say, I've actually been right where you've been. Right? That's why they have support groups. When you're going through cancer, talking to other people going through cancer is extremely helpful. This is what I felt like. I know for us, having a child with special needs, when we talk to other families that have special needs, there's just some understanding there. I understand what you're going through. And whatever it is, whatever your unique circumstance is, when you talk to other people who understand what you're going through, there's extra comfort. You can just help each other. Christ understands our comfort, our, our suffering. He suffered on earth. He was rejected. He was called all sorts of names. He was called demonized all the time. Like, well, you must be full of demons. You must be using demons, right? He understands it. So when Jesus' love is poured into your heart, he's not saying, well, I hope it works out. He's saying, I've been there. I've felt that. I've had physical struggles. I've had emotional struggle. I've had violence done to me. I've had the Father forsake me on the cross. Like, I've been there. So I think when his love is in us, it, it pulls us in. Right? He loved us when we were an enemy. Here's another one that I think why the suffering loop works. God is near in our suffering. And I can only say this by stories you've told. But when you've told me, this, this is your story. You say things like, when my spouse died, then... He was close. Anybody testify to that? You don't have to just, when they were gone, I felt him so close. I didn't want the circumstance, but boy, was he close. When I was going in the hospital, he was right there. When my kids were very difficult or are or wayward, he was right there. Right? We've had that nights laying on the floor outside a kid's bedroom who won't obey and Jesus is with you. It's not solved, right? It's not gone, but he's right there. So I don't know how that, why and how that the problem exists, but Jesus is so close. And I've heard people say, I don't want the problem back, but I do want that closeness back with the Lord. So he says it here, Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's right there when you're hurting. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. All of it. So that we may be able to comfort those who aren't in any affliction. So we take that, that comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
right? He's comforting you. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So when you're in the midst of the mess, that's the most comfort, right? It's abundant. So suffering is when Christ is closest. So I think that's why the suffering loop works. You're suffering, and then you realize that you're, you're gaining patience, you're growing, and then you realize that you're actually being developed, your faith is more genuine, you're actually maturing, he's doing something in you. And you realize how much his love is poured into your heart because he died for you, because he's right there with you. So when you go through that whole loop of suffering and God's, you have more hope. You have a greater expectation that if he's with me in the valley, what's it going to be like when he's with me in person? What's it going to be like when he puts an end to all suffering? What's it going to be like when we're glorified? And so the suffering actually intensifies your hope it doesn't take it away because his love is there and his presence is there and the certainty that he's going to fix it is there. And that's why Christ's blessings give us an unshakable hope. Because we have all the things on the front end, justification, peace, access by grace. We have a confidence that we're going to be glorified with him. And even when we suffered, it intensifies our hope. So let me... There's an interesting thought to kind of wrap this up. This is from a book called Good to Great. It's actually a business book. I don't know if anybody's read that book. It's not new. Jim Collins. And in it, he describes a thing called the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox is that you confront the brutal facts of your circumstance and never lose faith that you'll prevail in the end. So Stockdale is actually a person. This is a person. So we'll see if I can read that. It says, the name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale. Actually, I have it right here. Who was the highest ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton. That's in Vietnam. Prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 to 1973. Stockdale lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. I can't even really imagine that. So the author, Jim Collins, got to interview him, and he was asking him questions, and he said, he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said when I asked him. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, in retrospect, I would not trade. So that Jim asked him, well, well, who didn't make it out? Who didn't make it out? He said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists? I don't understand. I said, now completely confused, given what he'd said 100 meters earlier. They were on a walk. So he's like, well, isn't that what optimism is? He says, the optimists... Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. So he says, after another long pause and more walking, then he turned to me and said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, 
with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So that's called the Stockdale Paradox. But here's how it works. Uh, It's this whole idea that you might be very much in, probably not a prisoner of war camp, but in something terrible. Physically, emotionally, relationally, economic, any kind of something. Spiritually, you're just, and you're struggling. And so we don't turn to optimism. Well, it just has to get better. Next month it'll get better. It could be very real. You could suffer the rest of your life. You could never get healed. You could, you could never get it fixed. You, what, whatever it is. It could be the rest of your days on this earth. So we don't want false op- optimism, but we have this hope. He called it faith. We have an expectation that it will absolutely work out in the end. Jesus will return. He will judge all evil. He will make a new heaven and new earth. We will dwell with him forever. There will be no more sin or Satan. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more violence. There will be no more broken bodies and broken relationships. That's going to be gone. So we can be in the middle of a tough reality, and we might go... It might not ever get better on earth, but we can also have this unshakable hope because he's coming back. And even when I suffer, it gives me more hope because he's right next to me. And so I don't have to freak out. I don't have to be falsely optimistic. I can be very realistic about what I'm struggling with and also be rejoicing in the suffering because it's going to bring me to more hope. And we're, we're confident in the hope of the glory of God. He's coming back. He's defeated the grave. He's going to come get us. We're going to be with him. And that's where we are. So we can have that confidence. We can, Christ's blessing gives us the unshakable hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are risen from the dead, reigning on high in glory, and you'll be returning in glory. Lord, I pray for any again who are in the midst of the suffering. Would you be with them while they're learning patience? Would you be with them while they're learning endurance and developing that genuine faith? Would you be with them and increase their hope, increase their expectation of your future glory? Lord, we rejoice. I just pray for any who have not yet had faith in you, that they would realize that they're missing out, or they would turn to you. They'd realize that you can heal them that you can change and that you can invite them into this life of hope of the glory of God. Lord, we want to follow you. Be with us. Be near us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.